You know, uh, something comes to my mind, it might be useful, I don't know. When I had prostate cancer, you know, one of those moments when you get serious about, hmm, let's take a deep breath, have surgery. Um, Now people ask you, you know, following the surgery, how are you doing? How are you? You know what my default answer is? I don't have a clue. The day before the biopsy, I thought I was healthy as could be. And I wasn't. So right now, how are you, John Piper? I don't know. Could be dying of a horrible cancer. I don't know. So, you know, my, I don't, you don't want to hear that when you ask me how you're doing. What you want is what I'll say. I'll say, I feel fine. I feel fine. That hides a lot. It's true. I do feel fine. And I think I'm healthy. My numbers are good. But am I good? God knows. So when I say, we'll go in 60 more minutes, if the Lord wills, I really mean it. I could be in heaven 60 minutes from now. And so could you. Or hell. It's good to think about that. Number five, we're talking about God's sovereignty over Satan and all of his remarkable powers that God has given him in this age. I'm not going to read all of this by Job, kind of retell the story of Job and read a few sentences. Job is one of the most important books on suffering, maybe the most important book on suffering in the Bible. And uh, Satan comes to God and says, uh, the reason Job is a worshiper of you is because you treat him so well. He's healthy, he's got lots of camels, lots of donkeys, lots of sheep, and a big family, and all is well. Why wouldn't he worship you? But if you take those things away, he'll curse you to your face. That's the gist of the issue. You put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, he'll surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. Now just think about that for a moment. You may hurt Job very badly. He's going to lose his children, all ten of them, and he's going to lose his his animals, and he's going to have his... Well, let's stop right there. This first half. And God says, don't you dare touch his body. And Satan can't. He can't. Which means he could have drawn the line earlier. Don't take his children. Take his animals. Or take five of his children. He could have drawn the line anywhere he wanted. Well, the animals all are killed partly by man-made raids and partly by natural disaster. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose. So now here's how he responds. He he rose and he tore his robe. He shaved his head. He fell to the ground. And he worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave... And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin or did he blame God. Is that a true statement? The Lord took away? Or did Satan take away? The Lord said, Satan, you can have at him. 
But Job says, the Lord took my children. And I think this verse right here, 22, is meant to keep us from concluding that Job was wrong. Through all this, Job didn't sin. He didn't. When he said that, he didn't sin. When he said God was behind it, he didn't blame. Blame connotes imputing sin to God. When you blame somebody, you're saying they're guilty. Job said God did it, but he's not guilty. There's no guilt in it. God has a right to do whatever he wants. The Lord takes and the Lord gives. Um, I, I didn't put it here. I wrote it in as a note to myself. Another evidence that Job is telling the truth there is that at the end of the book, when all is said and done, the author who is inspired. I mean, Job sometimes says false things. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar sometimes say false things. This book is a collection of false and true statements. You have to sort your way through as to what's good and bad. Well, chapter 42 is a summary, and it's written by the author of the book, not quoting anybody who might be saying something wrong. And what he says is this in verse 11 of chapter 42. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him and his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. That is crystal clear. So whatever you make of this, the Lord took away the author of the book, who is inspired by God, said, all the evil the Lord brought upon him. So we're talking here, we're not going to look at the whole story of Job yet. We're talking about God's sovereignty over Satan's hand in natural disasters. Some of these uh, natural, some of these things, these, uh, where is it? The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep. That's lightning, probably. There's no reason to think it's some weird supernatural glow from Mars or something. The fire of God and burned up the sheep and the servants. In other words, some violent kind of storm did that. And the children were killed by a what? Wind. Wind. Psalm 135. The Lord is great. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. He makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his treasuries. If there's a wind, God's bringing it forth. This one is very powerful because it's the Lord Jesus there rose a fierce gale, Mark 4, and the waves were breaking over the boat. And Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And the disciples say, Who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? So natural disasters, tsunamis, Tornadoes, Katrinas are ordained by God. Because if you, I mean, after the tsunami, there was a man, he's written a book since then is a very, very bad book. And he said in the Wall Street Journal, no Christian is licensed to utter odious banalities about God's inscrutable counsels or blasphemous suggestions that all this mysteriously serves God's good ends. Now, if he were here I would say, 
when, when, when Jesus says this, that a wind and a sea are addressed by the Lord, and he says to them, you hush, you be still, and they obey, could he have done that to this wave coming across the South Sea? Or was it too big to handle? Or is he changed in the last 2,000 years? I don't know what he would answer. I just know what I would answer. He hasn't. I'm not throwing the Bible out. Jesus Christ, one word and a wave goes flat. One word and a wind stops. 9-11. This is jets. Now God is watching these jets. 60 people, 90 people on the jet, 2,500 people in there, lots more. And they're flying for the World Trade Towers. What would it have taken to miss those towers? That's all. Blow them 60 feet off course. Piece of cake, if you can command them. There's just no way to believe in God and not give him his rights. We have to solve the problem of natural evil another way than by saying God couldn't and God is evil not to. That's not the solution. we will move toward a solution. There's not a plant or flower below that makes the glories known and clouds arise and tempests blow by order from thy throne. I wonder how many people, when they sing that song, mean it. The sovereignty over Satan's sickness-causing power. Are you sick? Did Satan do it? He might have. Might be doing it right now. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing those who were oppressed by the devil. So there's a generic statement that lots of the sicknesses that Jesus healed were demonically caused. Luke thirteen sixteen. This woman, remember the woman like this? You could stand up. This woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, should she not be released from this bond on the Sabbath day? And then Jesus straightened her up, healed her, and he, he attributed it to Satan. Don't. I don't think you should jump to the conclusion all disease is satanically caused, just lots of it probably. Because you read other texts like this, Exodus 4.11, the Lord said to him, who made man's mouth, who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? I'm so thankful that we have a disabilities ministry here at Bethlehem. Those are disabilities there. Mute, deaf, blind. There are others. And God is saying to Moses, would you stop arguing with me? That your mouth isn't good enough to go down there and represent me? I made your mouth. I made everybody's mouth and eyes and legs and arms and back. And it is a deep, deep, deep gratification to my soul that the, the minds and hearts of those in our disabilities ministry, both those with disabilities, those who 
parent, those with disabilities, and those who lead in that ministry are of one mind that we're not, we're not going to get angry at God about this, at least not in our best moments. We're going to submit and we're going to say, this boy, this girl is here for a reason, for the good of this church, painful as it is in our family. We're going to love at great cost. That is one of the most beautiful things that's happening in this church. You just need to know about it. Well, that's one of the texts that I have heard and seen in emails. He passed by, saw a man blind from birth. His disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? How many, how many parents of disabled kids might be asking that, right? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. And then instead of looking for another cause, he looks for a purpose. It was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That, that's methodologically helpful to see how he does that. You, what if they pushed on him here and said, well, 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 we didn't ask that. We didn't, we didn't ask that. We didn't ask the purpose. We asked the cause. And, and Jesus says, you, you don't need to know any more than you already know about the cause. What you need to know is that God's in charge here and he's got a good purpose. And I suspect that's the way we'll have to live with a lot of things we don't know about the cause, whether it's Satan or not. Or Now, Job, we're back to Job because Satan comes back to Job and, and he says, skin for skin. The reason he still worships you, yeah, all that a man has he'll give for his life. However, you put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh... He'll curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your power. Only spare his life. So you can touch his body now, but you can't kill him. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job. Now that's really clear. Satan is the subject of that verb. Those boils were caused by Satan. And they were horrible. Horrible. Little worms got in them, it says in chapter 6. He had to take scraps of broken um, pots and scrape them, get the juice out of them, and try to get the worms out of his. Horrible. And they were from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Satan is really brutal. And his wife said, you curse God and die. And he said, you speak like one of the foolish women. I'm glad, I'm glad he said, uh, as. Because in my poem about Job, I got her back. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. I just, I just think she had a bad moment. And who has not had a bad in fact, I was talking with a man who's really wrestling in his marriage the other day and horrible things have been said back and forth and some things are said, they're so hurtful that you wonder if you can ever recover. And uh, I took him to Job 6.26, which talks about, I'll read it to you, get it right. Job 6. Um, do you think, just Job talking to his Accusers, Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? You hear what that's saying? You're beating me up because I just said something that probably I, he's going to wind up regretting that he said it. And you're going to, at this moment with these boils all over me and my ten dead kids, you're going to get in my face now. So years ago, as a staff, we developed this simple phrase, discern the words for the wind. And in the hospital room and at the funeral and on the street, the 
kid lying in the curb like I stood beside a dad down on 11th Avenue with a dead girl with a blue tarp over her. You don't, you don't do theological analysis at that moment with a man's cry. You might later, you know, a month or two or a year, but you, you cut people a lot of slack like Mrs. Job. So he didn't say, you're a foolish woman. He said, you're talking like a foolish woman. And he probably said it gently. Shall we indeed accept good at the hand of God and not accept adversity? And he chalked it up to God. Satan did it. It says right there, Satan smote Job. And Job said, shall we receive good at the hand of God and not accept adversity? And with all this, he didn't sin with his lips. So he knows that though Satan is real, he's not ultimate. We're talking about sovereignty over sickness. I think the thorn in the flesh in Paul is a sickness. Can't prove it. You know, some people have suggested it's a, a really painful relationship. Well, maybe. But look, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Thorn in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to torment me. To keep me from exalting myself. <laughs> Whose design is that? Satan doesn't want him to exalt himself? I think he does. It's how stupid Satan is. So Satan is the one who has somehow made Paul miserable. And the effect is holiness. Satan serves sanctification here. This is how irrational Satan is and how sovereign God is. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that he might leave me. So he knew, he knew good and well, that if the Lord willed to take it away, he could contradict Satan's message. And he said, my grace is sufficient, my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I boast about my weaknesses. So Satan is involved in giving you thorns, and Christ is totally able to take them away, and sometimes he doesn't. So if you have a thorn, and, and you can broaden this out, really, I think, to any kind of pain in your life that you have deeply repented of, if there's any of you involved in it, and you've cried out repeatedly to the Lord. Um, if you ask me the practical question, how do you know when to stop praying? I don't know the answer to that. I'm still praying about certain pains in my life for decades. More than three times, that's for sure. Um, and I think it's God's will that I keep asking. Keep knocking, keep asking. That's the point of the parables, right? Knock, 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 knock until, until the Lord gets up and says, I'm tired of this knocking. I'm opening the door. Give me some bread. Get out of my life, you know? That's the, that's, that's, that's the parable. That's not the application. <laughs> Isn't it amazing that Jesus would tell a parable like that about God? I mean, that's really amazing. He's very risky. If you think Mark Driscoll's risky... Try Jesus. Um, if so, I don't want to make light of this. When can you know that God has given you this and you're just going to own it for the rest of your life? And I think the answer that Paul would give, he told me. He told me. What would that be like? Um, just probably some settled peace where the Lord says, you know, I love you very much. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to be there. I'm going to give you the strength you need, but don't come to me with this anymore. This is your lot. I'm giving it to you. 
I think you'd need to know that pretty soundly in order to stop praying. Um, yeah. So I'm not going to criticize you if you've lived with an issue, a person, a pain, a besetting sin for 30, 40, 50 years, and you're still praying about it. I'm saying, I'll pray with you. Amen. I have seen breakthroughs in people's lives years and years later. And you wonder, why did God answer the thousandth prayer and not the 800th? <laughs> he has his purposes that we do not know. Number seven. God's sovereignty over Satan's use of animals. Now, this is more relevant today than you think it is. This, the, the stories are going to look kind of twinky. But if I apply it a certain way, it won't seem that way. Um, Revelation 12 talks about the serpent, the old serpent. But that may be just symbolic, and so we'll leave that one aside. Jonah. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days. So God appoints fish. You're appointed. That's, isn't that remarkable? You're appointed, and you will swallow him. You won't chew, you just swallow. I control your jaws, I make a little bubble in your stomach, we'll make this work, but you're appointed, I'm choosing you. You're the elect whale <laughs> for this purpose. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited. So he can decide when the fish vomits and where he vomits. So the Lord God appointed a plant. So now he's talking to plants. And it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his... Discomfort. And God appointed a worm. I just love this. A worm. I appoint you, worm. Kill the plant. So this is absolute sovereign control over the animal realm. God can do that to any lion that breaks out of a zoo. Or any mosquito carrying malaria. Another application besides malaria. A rough winter is on a crusade, has been for some time, to argue that spiritual warfare ought to include uh, recruiting more Christians to be involved in science in order to stop helping us live with diseases and be about conquering diseases. Been reading that stuff over the years? So malaria kills millions of people. It's the poor man's disease around the world. And then there are these blindnesses, a little fly that bites and makes people river blindness. And there's these diseases we don't know anything about here in the States that just take out people by the millions around the, the world. And, and he blames Calvinists on this. And I've written him so many, I've written him over and over again and said, Calvinism is not the problem because he says... People like me, who believe God is sovereign and therefore ordains such things, take away all the motive to conquer them. To which I say, baloney! You look at the history of the world, the people, the Christians who have been involved in science and in creativity and in making machines and in alleviating pain, say in pregnancy, have been people who totally believe God runs the world. And he runs it with his almighty power. And the very fact that he runs it means the world is reliable. It's got laws. You can figure them out. And you can change the world. And we certainly should. So I'm saying amen to this design that we fight disease. And virtually all disease is caused by animals. Or I suppose some are caused by plants. Bacteria is a plant, isn't it? So there's these little viruses and these little plants and these little animals that you can't see. And they're killing people by the millions all over the world. And Satan is behind it. And God rules it. 
And there is no contradiction to say that loving your neighbor as you love yourself means if you've got it within you to get rid of smallpox, get rid of it. Yellow fever, get rid of it. Black plague, get rid of it. So I'm, I'm summoning you. This is an altar call moment for some of you who are totally incompetent relationally and love science. Give your heart to it and save the world of some disease or become a Wycliffe missionary. I, I can only say that because I love Wycliffe so much. <laughs> oh, Wycliffe. So go off into the jungle and translate the Bible somewhere. What a wonderful use of some personalities. <laughs> and I say it with the greatest love in my heart. I know so many of them. And uh, they're, the, they're, the, they're the stars of the universe for me. They, they, really don't, they really don't get along very well with people, but... They're saving souls by putting the Bible in languages. So that's one, but I'm back to the main point. Scientists, rise up. Rise up. Discover those vaccines. That's service of Jesus. You're not fighting God because God ordains that as much as he ordains the mosquito. Don't, don't say, oh, God is sovereign. I'll just lie in bed all day. Get out of bed. Join him in his purposes to save and to heal and to love and to relieve suffering, especially eternal suffering. Number eight, God's sovereignty over Satan's temptations to sin. This gets a little more, a little more uh, controversial. Um, I, maybe this helped to say, I don't know if it would or not. Sometimes people ask me, how do you take a church or how do you take a Sunday school class or a friend or wife or a group from being very free will oriented and rejecting the sovereignty of God over to a robust, humble submission to God's sovereignty the way we've been looking at it? How, how do you do that? One thing that I would suggest, and this is not subtle. I'm not into any kind of deceit. I'm just saying one thing is that Talking about his sovereignty in the natural realm, which is pretty much what we've been doing up till now, is, is more acceptable to a lot of people, not, not everybody, than to say he's sovereign over our wills. But he's sovereign over wind. That's problematic enough, right, in view of hurricanes. But you start there, and if people can begin to to delight in the greatness of God, the majesty of God, the, the sovereign goodness of God in hard things. Naturally, it's less of a step to take when you take up something like this, namely God's sovereignty over our wills. God's sovereignty over Satan's temptation to sin. Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him. So this is sin to the max. In my little book, Spectacular Sins, this is the most spectacular in my judgment in the universe. The betrayal of the Son of God by a friend with a kiss is the most spectacular sin that's ever been committed. I think it's more spectacular than Lucifer rebelling at the beginning of sin uh, or, or any other you could come up with. So this is mega sin here. Was God in charge? Acts 2.23, this man, Jesus, delivered over, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So he was delivered over by Judas, inspired by Satan, by the predetermined plan of God. 
or Acts 4.27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod, with all of his wicked sins. He's the one who put the purple robe on him, and they got down and mocked and wanted to see a miracle. Pontius Pilate, sniveling expediency, washing his hands, trying to get out of his responsibility, along with the Gentiles, the soldiers, and the others who put the crown on his head and spit on him and hit him with rods and said, Prophesy, and the peoples of Israel who cried, Crucify him, crucify him. That's all sin. To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. There isn't any more important text in the Bible from my understanding of the compatibility between human willing as sin, blameworthy, punishable sin, and God's sovereignty than that one right there. You know why it's so, so central? It's because it's the cross we're talking about. When people get in my face, either meekly or angrily, about the apparent problems of saying that God governs all things, including the sinful actions of free human beings, I say, no, please be careful. Because if you're consistent, if you carry your view to the end, you destroy the atonement. Because the atonement happens when the Son of God is murdered by God's design to cover your sin. And the murder of the Son of God is the greatest sin that's ever been committed, and it is the key to your salvation. If you pull the plug on God's right to rule the sinful acts of men, you cannot have God designing the death of his son at their hands. You can't have it both ways. The rubber meets the road at the cross, as it does in so many areas, right there. So if you want to talk this through with anybody, you're going to wind up here someday. You don't have to explain this. You don't have to have a final solution for it. You do need to believe it. That God, they did whatever your God hand and your purpose predestined to occur. That's what Herod did. That's what Pontius Pilate did. That's what the Gentiles did. And that's what the peoples of Israel did. So my answer is that God is sovereign over Satan's temptations to sin. Satan was involved in this big time. Now look at this. This, Luke twenty-two thirty-one, is the New Testament reenactment of Job. It's the closest parallel to Job in all the New Testament. Look what happens. Simon, this is before Peter denies the Lord three times. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Now stop there. What's going on? Demanded from whom? Evidently something like Job. Satan comes into the council of the Almighty. I don't know why God would permit him there, but he does. And, and he, he demands, you let me at him. And I'll cause him to deny your son in the very moment of your son's suffering. And I will... What do you think the meaning of sift is here? I'll sift you like wheat. I think it means I'm going to take Peter. I'm going to flop him on the grid. And I'm going to push him through. And you know what's coming out and staying in the grid? Faith! And the Peter that comes through on the other side is de-faith. He is an unbeliever and a rejecter, and he's out of here because he doesn't want to get crucified too. That's what will happen if you let me at him. Something like that's going on here. And then look at what happens. But I have prayed for you. 
that your faith may not fail. Hmm. Did that prayer get answered? I think it did. If fail here means fail utterly. I think that's what it means. I mean, it's, it's a temporary short-circuiting of faith to say, I don't know him. I don't know Jesus. He's lying through his teeth. It's motivated by fear. This is not faith talking. So he's failing. But will he fail utterly? The righteous, how does it say? The righteous stumble seven times, but they do not fall headlong. Psalm. But I have prayed for him, for you, that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, isn't this sovereignly beautiful? This is not if. When once you have turned again, and now you see one of the purposes in it, strengthen your brothers. That is an amazing passage of Scripture. Satan says, you give me you give me this rock, this rock, and I'll crush him to sand. And God says, you can have him. And Jesus says, he's mine, Father. And the Father says, I know he's yours. And Jesus, the Father says, so what would you like me to do? And at that moment, they could do anything they want. They're God. And Jesus says, let him fall three times, but then bring him back with tears, bitter weeping. Break him. Make him useful later for weak people. And the father says, all right, we'll do it that way. That's how limited Satan is in your life. Be hammering you with temptation. And uh, isn't it glorious that Jesus is praying for you? According to Romans 8. Who should bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. It is Christ Jesus who died for you. Yes, who was raised, who indeed intercedes for you, who shall separate you from the love of Christ. Jesus, this very moment, is praying for you. And the Father always answers him. He could have prayed that it only happened twice, once. He could have prayed that he'd conquer. And Satan would be knocked back on his heels and there would have been no denial. But he had his purpose. Strengthen, when you turn, strengthen your brothers. Like maybe John Mark. Remember what John Mark did? He, he bailed in Lystra. Was it Lystra? Iconium? Missionary journey? Paul doesn't want quitters. You're out of here. You're going to quit. Later on, he wants to go with Paul. And Paul says, I don't take people like that. Barnabas, not more gentle than Paul. So I'll take him then. Give him a chance, Paul. Paul says, got too much at stake. I go to jail almost everywhere I go. I can't have people like that with me. Now, Peter um, was very closely related to Mark because Papias, outside the Bible, said that Peter was Mark's main source of information for the gospel. If it was the same Mark. Number nine, God's sovereignty over Satan's mind-blinding power. This is how you got saved because of this sovereignty. Second Corinthians 4.4, 4, in whose case the God of this world, so there's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. People don't believe because Satan, along with their own 
innate depravity is causing a darkness of their mind. Satan can do that. How does anybody get saved then? Verse 6. God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So notice the parallels here. The light, the light of the knowledge of the gospel, of the glory of God, of the glory of Christ. In the face of Christ, who is the image of God. This is the same reality being talked about. Only here, the blindness is being overcome. God says, let there be light in this heart. And there was light. That's how you got saved. You may not even know that. But you were dark. You were blind. Satan was keeping you indifferent to the gospel. Didn't mean anything to you. It was boring, scary, whatever. And, and then somehow, by some means, light broke in. Knowledge happened. Glory of God was seen. Christ became irresistibly attractive. And so, yes, Satan has mind-blinding blinding power, but not ultimate power. He can, God can overcome it. Romans eleven twenty-five. I mean, that, let's, let's name that. That's called irresistible grace. Irresistible grace does not mean grace can't be resisted. It means you can only resist it as long as he lets you resist it. And when he wants to overcome your resistance, he does this. He changes your heart and your mind. He opens your eyes so that you see and are drawn to the Savior. Coming to Christ is the appearance of Christ as irresistibly beautiful. And it's free because you're being drawn to what you delight in. It would be unfree if you looked at Christ and said, I don't want you, I don't like you, I think you're um, false and not beautiful, but I'm scared of hell like crazy and I'm coming anyway. That's not free and it's not valid. We are free when we come to Christ, meaning our eyes have been opened to see what's real and we're acting in accord with reality and we're drawn to true beauty with a heart that's truly attracted by beauty, the beauty of Christ. Another illustration of God's sovereignty over mind-blinding power is the Jews. I do not want you, to, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Now, here's the implication. You see that word until? A hardening has come upon Israel. That's why, that's why it's so difficult to win Jews to Christ today. A hardening has come upon Israel, but it has a limit. It has a time frame. There's going to come a day when, after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, that's going to be overcome, which just shows you how sovereign God is over it. It's got his time frame, hardening, stop. Now, a great movement to Christ. One more, and we will pause for questions. Satan's spiritual captivity. This is maybe one of the most relevant ones for you when you think about whether there are bondages in your family, spiritual bondages, uh, demonic bondages. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. With gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps, it's not guaranteed, it's not automatic, God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Just think of it. Paul is describing for us how you can be the instrument 
of delivering people from the captivity of the supernatural power of the devil. I, I do not minimize or deny the relevance of extraordinary exorcisms. I've been involved in one. I mean, mega demonic possession. Out of control, horrible, another personality type for two hours. And watch the person be delivered and forever changed, at least for the years I knew her after that. So I, I know that happens. That's real. Demonic possession in the Bible, in the 21st century, real. Be ready. Best way to be ready is to know your Bible and to pray every day. Reading lots of books are not the key, but going deep with God and believing in the supernatural, studying what rights you have as a child of God and knowing the power within you and being sold out to him, that's the way to get ready. It's normal, radical, crazy Christianity is the way to get ready to meet the devil some dark night. However, that's not what's going on here, is it? And yet this is deliverance. This is deliverance ministry. It involves things like be kind, don't be quarrelsome, be a good explainer of truth, be patient. These are all powerful spiritual realities. Just as powerful as be gone, Satan, maybe more powerful, maybe more necessary, maybe harder for you. There are a lot of charismatic types who are real proud people. They go around delivering people all the time with these, get all be gone. And then they're rats in private. They just treat people terrible. And they love money. Well, this is hard, right? You've got victory over patient impatience in your life. So patience, gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Now, all of that is stage setting with spiritual powers for deliverance. And, and how does it come? Well, God, in view of that teaching and that love, may grant them repentance to come to a knowledge of the truth, which they're in. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they may come to their senses. They've been like in a stupor and escape then from the snare of the devil who's had them captive to do his will, not God's. Wow. So, Satan has people in captivity. Maybe in your house. Maybe you. I don't think he possesses believers. Pfft. But he does almost everything else to believers. Oppresses and jerks around and darkens and discourages and just unbelievable forces against us. And this is the way we are to conquer him ordinarily. The others, I think, are more extraordinary. This is ordinary.